This week on Excelsior Journeys, I sit down with musician Zach Comtois. He has worked with various rappers, blues musicians, and for five years, he was one of the guitarists for Britney Spears at her Las Vegas residency. He's got a lot of stories to tell, and we are so looking forward to hearing them all. JLD, do the honors. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award-winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire, and you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy. Prepare to ignite. Is there a burning desire within to share your creativity with the rest of the world? Do you insist on pursuing your passion by any means necessary? Then you are on an Excelsior journey, and you are not alone. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys. This is George Saroy. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you so much for listening to over 80 episodes with so many great creative people. I hope you have been half as inspired as I have been during this entire run. And if you like what you've been hearing and you want to spread the word, please do so. Uh, just send all your friends, your loved ones over to he's got it.com slash podcasts and let them choose which platform they'd like to subscribe to. If they're Apple users, please recommend the Apple Podcast link. If they're Android users, they have a lot of different options to choose from, including Podbean, iHeartRadio, and Pandora, and Amazon too. And also, just so you know, I have started another podcast. This is a 30-part miniseries. Um, it's going to be aired from April 1st through April 30th, and it's called Reaching for Greater Glory. It is a, a very close look behind the scenes of the creation of the next draft of Greater Glory, part three in the Excelsior journey, the actual novels that really kind of inspired this entire show. And I am finally working on the second draft of the book that is going to close that trilogy. You're going to learn a lot about how difficult part threes can be. Now, regarding my guest this week, I want to tell you a little story Back in 1997, 1998, I was a senior at Marymount Manhattan College, and a lot of my friends at that time were, were sophomores. We were all dorming in the same location, the 92nd Street Y in New York City. And one of my friends, Brendan Murphy, hello, Brendan, I really hope you're listening here. He stopped into my dorm room to introduce me to his cousin, Zach. And Zach was about 10, 9, 10 years old or so at the time. And when I saw him, he was holding a little X-Wing fighter. And I knew this kid was going to be just fine. He, and little did I know that he was going to surpass that coolness a couple a uh, year later. Because in 1999, not sure if you guys remember during this time, but this was very much where the, uh, the internet was still kind of in its infancy and we all had to rely on movie phone in order to get our tickets for movies. And so we had assigned our friend, Justin Adler. Hi, Justin, to get tickets for opening night of star Wars episode one, the phantom menace. And he called me the night that he got them and said, I have good news. I have bad news and I have weird news. And I said, okay. He said, the good news is I got tickets. Great. The bad news is I can only get six of them. Okay, what's the weird news? The weird news is it's at 4 a.m. And so we had a very select group that were willing to go ahead and make that excursion down to Union Square in Manhattan for a 4 a.m. showing of Star Wars Episode One. And one of those six was Zach. 
So even more cool points just, you know, attached on, on there. And little did I know that that was only going to be the slightest little bit of coolness that he was going to show because over 20 years later, I find out through Brendan that he has gone on to become a very successful guitarist working with rappers, working with blues artists. And for five years, the five years of Britney Spears' residency in Las Vegas, he was her guitarist. And he's got a lot of stories to tell. I am so excited that you get to hear just how cool this guy really is. I was right back in 97, 98. This kid is cool. I just had no idea how cool. And I'm so thrilled to be able to catch up with him on this week's episode. So it's my pleasure to introduce to you, Zach Comtois. Zach, how are you today, sir? I'm good, George. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here, man. And um, I'm thrilled that you, that, uh, that you are here. We got a lot of catching up to do. So again, back in 1998, you know, you stopped in with Brendan holding that X-Wing. That's when that's when I knew it was just like, all right, this kid's this kid's really cool. Um, well, not not only did you think that, but you also said it. I don't know if you remember that. You're like, Is that an X-wing? <laughs> you're like, you're cool. You can stay. <laughs> it sounds like something I would say. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was I was glad that I, I passed the George test. Oh, you, you, you were you were, you'd pass that instantly. Like that's that's something that, you know, there are other people that are still waiting to pass that. But it's <laughs> um it, it just kind of reminds me how like uh, one year later I was doing I was sitting down with my uh, with one of my new bosses at uh, my first part time job. And I'm sitting there at his desk and I look over to the corner of his desk and he's got there a very familiar red truck sitting on there. And I just pointed to it. and I was like, is that Optimus Prime? And he said, yeah, <laughs> I was like, may I? And he's like, go for it. Picked it up, transformed it, put him back on, on the desk and you know, that wound up being Justin Marcus, who is the co-host of his own show out here, um, which is uh, Duets. So, you know, kudos to Justin Marcus, kudos to Mike Serjak, who is also the uh, the co-host of that show. Um, now, we, you, you've been obviously incredibly busy, you know, since that fateful weekend over at the Hirsch Y, um, but uh, more so since April of last year. You've been working on your own record, correct? I have, yeah, and it was the kind of thing where I mean, I know that this uh, COVID situation, this pandemic, has affected everyone differently. And yeah. for me, I was living in New York at the time, and you know, it was the day that the NBA canceled their season that I was like, maybe this isn't all going to blow over. Yeah, and I kind of ended up spending the month of March thinking, like, what am I going to do? Because at that time, I was auditioning for tours and mm. you know kind of boning up on on just playing keyboard and playing guitar and and keeping my sideman chops in order yeah um that all came to a screeching halt in march and i ended up spending the rest of that month kind of feeling like i don't know what to do nothing i don't know when i'm going to play again yeah and uh by the time april had rolled around i had sort of felt like i'd given myself enough time to feel sorry for myself and now mm. it was time to get up off the mat and start working on something and um me and my my best friend uh mark fortier started writing our own music and it quickly evolved into a project that we both became very invested in and now we're you know nine songs into a full-length record wow wow and are you doing vocals on there as well or is it just instrumental what's the what kind of album are we expecting 
So at this point in time, all the demos that we've done have been just in our respective bedrooms Mm -hmm. on Logic. Yeah. And, you know, it depends on who starts the idea. Mark might have a a really cool guitar idea. And if I listen to it, I might be like, well, that that might sound really cool on keys. And we just sort of flush it out naturally. Um, But at this point, the two of us have played all the instruments and I've done all the singing. Nice. Nice. And how long have you been uh, been singing? Oh, man, uh, I'm not even sure. Probably since birth. Um, I remember singing. My dad would play Beatles records a lot when I was a kid. And I remember singing the harmonies nice. along with the Beatles records because those those parts were easier to sing. They weren't as high. Yeah. And that was kind of my my gateway into singing. And and actually, Brendan and I just at family Sunday dinner would end up, you know, by the time I was a teenager, we would end up breaking out a couple of acoustic guitars and singing a bunch of songs and, and the family would all gather around we we come from a very musical family. So there was always, yeah, I, I can, I can definitely present. agree with that. Yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> knowing, uh, knowing, uh, Brendan's family as, as I, as much as I do, you know, like, which may not be all that much, but at the same time, it's a, healthy amount to know just how artistic and eclectic everyone is there. So it's, yeah, you can't help but be creative when you're, when yeah, you're in, in a family like that. Yeah. It's like a part of the, it's a part of the Sunday routine. It was like, we would come over, everyone would catch up, we would have dinner. And then after dessert, we would break out a few guitars and everyone would just sing and play music for hours. Nice. Oh man. Yeah, that's I'm I'm getting flashbacks of you know, the times when Brennan would do just that. <laughs> I still remember he um, 98, 99 or so during the time when they were living in Yorkville Towers. And Brennan take, uh, takes me over to to the back room where he and um, roommate Joe Pospisil, who was best man at my wedding. Hello, Joe. Um, he would just he just sat down and got his guitar and started playing Sweet Home Chicago. I was like, I know that song, so I just went ahead and, pl- and sang it. You know, like while he played, it was just a random little jam session that you know just kind of came out of nowhere. It's it was kind of par for the course <laughs> when, uh, when, yeah. when when you're friends with Brendan, yeah, yeah. And that's so awesome because it's sort of like I was fortunate in the sense that my family really put me in the position to start performing yeah. at a really young age, even if it was just at Sunday dinner. So I got really used to it. I've never had stage fright or anything like that probably just because you know it was always treated as like a normal thing like we were we were all just as likely to go outside and play wiffle ball for a few hours as we were to break out a few guitars and and sing music and and it kind of got me into performing at a really young age awesome that actually kind of answers the first real question that i always have for my guests because um everyone really kind of has that sort of lightning bolt moment um, or so many do, you know, like where they just suddenly realize that, you know, this is what I want to do. This is the path I want to be on. This is the journey I want to take. Um, but it sounds like it's almost like the, it's like the family was kind of prepping you for it almost. Yeah, it felt that way. I mean, it just was such a it was such an integral part that was woven into our family DNA. Yeah. Um, music was just always part of what we did. But as far as like a eureka moment, as, as cliche as this is to admit, I vividly remember watching The Song Remains the Same, the Led Zeppelin concert movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, yep. And seeing Jimmy Page and thinking, whoa, that is the coolest <laughs> dude of all time. Nice. I want to do that. Oh, very cool. Very yeah. cool. And so, so 
that really just kind of started you on this on this journey? Is that what made you want to pick up the guitar in the first place? Yeah, I was fortunate in the sense that my dad already had a ton of musical instruments around the house. But once I saw Jimmy Page doing it, mm-hmm. I was like, okay, nothing else will ever come close to that for me. That yeah. is the thing I want to do forever. And I immediately uh, went into like my dad's instrument closet and took out a guitar and didn't know what to do with it, but just started making noise and yeah. figuring my way around. Really? So you were self-taught or did you get lessons afterwards? To, to a certain point, I was self-taught. I, I figured out as much as I could on my own. And my dad would kind of, he, at the time, I thought he was just kind of like not wanting to deal with me. But I realized in the future that he was putting me in a position to have to learn on my own and use my ears and yeah. use my intuition and try to figure things out. But occasionally, if I would get really stuck on something, Mm-hmm. I'd be like, how, how does, I remember the first guitar solo I ever learned was Money by Pink Floyd. And I remember oh, asking nice. him, how does David Gilmour do that where mm-hmm. the note goes up? And he's like, well, you bend the string. Mm. And I was like, oh. And then I would <laughs> spend, you know, a week and a half bending strings and figuring out how That's to sound so cool. like David Gilmour. That's, those are some great idols to have, though. You know, like, you know, knowing that, uh, knowing the status of them you know, just wanting to be of that level. That's, that's always a great thing. Yeah. I was, I was introduced to the English guitar players pretty early on and I just thought they were so cool. Yeah. I just wanted to play like that. I love it. I love it. So, um, so would you, so, so, um, having gone through like high school and everything, did you go to college to study music as well? I did. Yeah. So I, uh, I went to central Catholic, which was the same place Brendan went. And then, Kind of somewhere around sophomore year, I started hearing a lot about Berkeley College mm. of Music, which is here in Boston. Oh, wow. And that I sort it's similar to the experience I had when I saw Jimmy Page. Mm-hmm. I sort of decided right then. I was like, that is the only place for me. That is where I'm going to go. That's where all the people like me go. Yeah. Um, and I was fortunate enough to get in. And I went there. Um, and it was such a weird experience because... You know, when you meet people day to day, you ask them, you know, what do you do for a living? What are you into? What are your hobbies? And at Berkeley, it was like, what's your principal? You know, your principal <laughs> instrument. Yeah. You'd meet some guy who was just like a, a cool, you know, you'd end up being a friend of yours and you watching a football game on a Sunday and, and you would learn like a week and a half later that he was like a scholarship trombone player like, like the nastiest <laughs> trombone player you've ever heard wow so the first question i would ask people is like what's your principal nice nice that's really cool that is so yeah. cool and so um so what was it like just kind of going going through that and kind of uh building up your your skills as you went was it was that basically just like what um what the whole experience was like for you yeah it was well it was twofold it was there was that weird phenomenon that I'm sure you've dealt with as well of turning your favorite thing in the world into homework, mm-hmm. which sort of sucks a lot of the fun out of it. Yeah. <laughs> so that was yeah. kind of a, that, that was a challenge. Um, but then on the other side, I just started working a lot and I, I, I was a terrible student, so I don't mean I worked a lot as a student, but right. I started like going out and, and playing and, and touring and, trying to make as as many connections as I could. Like anyone who needed a guitar player back in those days, I would just play for pizza. Really? So 
yeah, I would just try and go out and, and cause I just wanted to play. So yeah. I would just go out whenever I could and take whatever gig I was offered. Nice. And so, so you were working at like bars and stuff like that, just trying to build up your name. Yeah, I did a lot of clubs, um, back then. And then at Berkeley, they had, uh, a re- the recording mm-hmm. slash production engineering program was called, uh, MP&E, which was, which stood for musical production and engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hung out with a lot of the MP&E kids, uh, just cause they had a really high work ethic and I, I felt at home with them. Um, yeah. and be- because I had hung out with a lot of them, I had got asked to play on a lot of their projects. So, nice. um, there was a lot of late nights spent in the recording studios at Berkeley, a lot of, uh, a lot of 10 to 2 AM and a lot of two mm-hmm. to 6 AM sessions, um, <sighs> So yeah, a lot of my time at Berkeley was spent playing clubs in Boston and in those recording studios in the wee morning hours. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so as you're doing this, as you're built, as you're, you know, building up your skills, working at, at uh, Berkeley, getting out there in clubs and everything, were you did did you have like a band that, that was that was doing this alongside you, or were you just like just as solo person looking to like connect as much as possible to other bands? It was a little bit of little bit of both, a little bit of everything, really. Um, my approach at Berkeley was just to say yes to everything. So I ended up, there was a point mm-hmm. in my second year there where I was in like seven bands. Wow. But I was also kind of a side guy. You know, I'd also developed a reputation as being able to cover for someone on pretty short notice. So nice. a lot of times I would get a call a day or two before a gig. and They'd be like, can you, can you do this gig at the, you know, whatever at the revolution rock bar on Wednesday at 10 PM. And I'd be like, all right. So I'd shed all the tunes and show up and play the gig. Or I also had, you know, there was a bunch of singer songwriters that I played with. And, mm-hmm. um, then eventually as I got to my third and fourth year, I started writing my own music and doing the like sad acoustic guitar player, singer songwriter thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sad <Nice>. bastard music. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> so after so after Berkeley and everything, what was the next step for you from there? So after Berkeley, I had pretty much just kept playing clubs and doing sessions as much as I could. Yeah. Um, and I had started doing a lot of weddings, um, which obviously was it paid a lot better than playing Berkeley sessions for pizza. So yeah did weddings for a while and then actually uh my buddy mark who i'm making this record with Mm -hmm. brendan and our friend stefan started a wedding band uh entertainment company together that's still going strong really um yeah and we we did weddings for years they they still are yeah so kind of right after berkeley i kind of dove headfirst into the uh wedding thing and also being a partner in a small business oh nice Nice, which is which is great experience too, because you're just like just constantly in demand. I'm sure, you know, especially in that area. I'm sure that, that uh, once you play one, then I'm sure like other people will be just like, "Oh, I heard you play at this wedding. Like, l- let me, you know, can you come and do my wedding?" You know, and so on and so on. Did was that was that kind of what it was like? Where you were able to just kind of like feed off the whole like local area? Oh yeah, that's that is completely accurate. We always say that every gig you do is an audition for another one. So 
we would play at a wedding and, you know, who knows, maybe three people there are dating or are engaged and are yeah. looking for a wedding band for their wedding as well. And planning a wedding is such a, a, a difficult thing to begin with that anything to make it easier as far as if you find something that works for you, you probably just stick with it to lighten the workload a little. And, and you know, it was the sort of thing where our first year we did one or two, our second year we did like two or three and our third year we did seven wow. and our fourth year we did 12 you know? so <laughs> every year it's sort of built up exponentially to the point where uh the band's called business time and uh, they still do 25 30 weddings a year that's fabulous that's that's yeah. terrific and it's, it's almost like you don't even have to like set up any sort of demos or anything like that because everyone's already there to hear how you do so right. yeah, that that plays that plays it up perfectly. That's great. Um, right? Yeah, it's sort of like a living resume. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so when you got into that, like, what was the what's the timeline for for that? You know, like, when were you really just like really dialed into just focusing on that? Um, I would say between 2010 and 2013. Okay, that was I I I left Berkeley in oh my god. Oh, nine. Oh, nine. Okay. Uh, and yeah, so 2010 we started and, you know, we would do other gigs on the side, but with business time, that was like 2010 to 2013. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of the, the biggest kind of building point of going from one wedding a year to, you know, 15. Yeah, that's that's fabulous. So the um, so it w- was it during that time. That's when you were working with uh, you, you mentioned Keb Moe and Bryce Vine names like those. That was actually a lot later. Um, I had I had done weddings and cover gigs. We call them GB gigs, which stands for general business, which is like, you know, weddings, functions, bar mitzvahs, birthday parties, anniversary parties, all that sort of stuff. Nice. Um, I've been doing all that sort of stuff with Mark and Brendan and Stefan throughout that period. And mm-hmm. then uh, I moved to New York. And as you know, living in new york is very expensive oh yes <laughs> oh <laughs> <And> yes <laughs> there's a lot of musicians and a lot of artists and entertainers already out there so mm-hmm. it's it's a challenge to move out there cold and find work uh and i had been playing with a group of guys in the boston area um unbeknownst to me at the time the keyboard player of that band was the musical director for Britney Spears. And that's how it starts. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, success is where preparation meets opportunity, right? Absolutely. Yep. It just so happened that I had been working with a guy and I had been, you know, ready for the call when he called me. But what basically what happened was I had been playing with these three other guys. We were, I kid you not playing in a hair metal tribute band in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Yeah. Um, and I would drive up from New York on the weekends to play with them because they were so good and it was so much fun. Nice. What um, were they called? Rock Hard. Nice. <laughs> yep. I see. I can't make this stuff oh, up. Oh, that's great. Oh, that's great. Yep. <laughs> yep. So I had been playing with those guys and, you know, at the time, financially, things were a bit tough. And I, I reached out to the keyboard player and said, hey, man, I'm, I'm here in New York. I'm, I'm having some trouble finding gigs and finding work. So if you know anybody who needs a guitar player, let me know. And unbeknownst to me, he had already decided that he was going to ask the guys in Rock Hard to be the band for Britney in Vegas. Wow. Um, 
So he emailed me back and he was like, yeah, man, you know, I don't know about New York. It's kind of tough. It's work is really dry there, but let me give you a call tomorrow and we'll talk about some things. And he called me and he was like, yeah, you, uh, I couldn't find anything for you in New York, but, um, if you're interested, I got another gig for you. You want to play guitar for Britney Spears? (laughs) And I just assumed he was messing with me. Right. (laughs) Just like looking for Ashton Kutcher to pop out of a bush or something. And (laughs) yeah, exactly. I was like, huh, funny. Seriously. Did you find any work for me? And he was like, I'm not kidding. You're going to get an email from the production manager in the next couple of days. Wow. And yeah. And that was, he was like, how soon can you be in Las Vegas? This was before the Vegas residency had started. Yeah. Um, so he basically was like, I can't get you a flight. So how soon can you be in Las Vegas? And I was like, don't worry about it. I'll get out there. Yeah. And I called up my parents. And I was like, I need to borrow some money. I have to get to Las Vegas. <laughs> and they were like, this is an alarming phone call. Get <laughs> just going to say that. Like, that's not exactly how you want to lead into that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. So, uh, but uh, yeah, I went out to Vegas and we rehearsed for a month. And before I knew it, I was playing lead guitar for Britney Spears. Wow. Wow. So, t- so, so you got to tell us about the audition. How did that all happen? As soon as you know, you get down, you get to Vegas, you have this opportunity. Obviously you're, you're just kind of like, I, I, you know, it's obviously you would be somewhat nervous about this, but at the same time, it's just like, you're, oh, you're very aware of the skills that you have. So what was that whole situation like? What was it like actually getting to audition for that? Well, so the weird thing about it is, given that this guy was already the musical director, mm-hmm. I had been unknowingly auditioning for like six months. Nice. Yeah. So he would like give me these little tests when we would go to do our hair metal gigs. He'd be like, hey, uh, you know, for the gig tonight, can you learn uh, Warrior by Scandal and nice. Rocky Like a Hurricane by the Scorpions? Scorpions yeah. He would, he would just throw out a bunch of tunes at me. Can you learn working man by rush and i'd be like oh okay and i would learn six songs the day of the gig mm-hmm. which was a skill that i had you know developed while i was at berkeley yeah and i would show up to the gig and play the tune so he had been auditioning auditioning me the whole time without me knowing it so by the time i got to vegas i was the gig was mine i was already on the gig he had already made his case yeah to the powers that be and they deferred to his expertise and said, all right, if this is the guy, this is the guy. So yeah. by the time I got down there, basically I landed at night, went to the hotel, went to sleep. And then the next morning it was, all right, now we shed the tunes all day, every day for a month, even before, you know, we go in to start playing the show. It was, we got there at the beginning of December, rehearsed just as a band the whole first week. Then the second week we started rehearsing with the dancers then the third week we started rehearsing with the artists, and then by the fourth week we were doing shows. Wow, wow! What was the what was the audience like for that? Because like this is, I'm sure it's, you know, with the, with the residency show, I'm sure obviously she's got her fans, but you know they're also you know people that are just like, hey, let's go, you know, we just finished over at the table, let's go see, you know, watch Britney. Um, yeah, what, so... what was that whole experience like? Well, so for for the early end of the shows, it was the diehards. I yeah. mean, it was the people who hadn't seen because I believe at that time she hadn't toured in over a year, maybe two. Mm-hmm. Um, so when the Vegas show went up, the whole audience was the diehards, and it was uh, it was about a five thousand seat room. Wow. Um, 
So it was all her her really big fans. And then as time went on, eventually you get, you know, the people who were just in town and mm-hmm. said, all right, let's go see the Britney show tonight. But it was never, you know, you hear the stories about a Vegas crowd or about, you know, a matinee crowd. And it was never like that. It was always, people were always really into it, which Good. I appreciated. Because I had literally gone from playing for six people in Rockport to playing for 5,000 in Vegas. Wow. Tell us about that first night. What was that? What was that whole experience like? It was amazing. It was, I was fortunate that we had rehearsed so much because at that point, after rehearsing one show every day for a month, Mm -hmm. everything becomes automatic. It was a pretty well-oiled machine even before we played our first show. So when you put 5,000 people in front of you, it kicks your energy into overdrive. Yeah. And the fact that we had played the show so many times meant that no one was kind of going to kind of go off script. Yeah. It it just felt really comfortable. It felt really lived in. So it just was, you know, we were playing music we had played a lot mm-hmm. with a lot more energy. And it was super exciting to play yeah. in front of a crowd like that. Oh, that's awesome. That's so much that I'm, I'm just like giddy about this This is like hearing all, all this, all this great stuff. Like this, this just sounds like just hearing it, you know, like you talking about it is terrific, but just, I can't even imagine what it's like experience it. It's, um, you know, experiencing it. So, um, what was it like working with Brittany? She was great. She was, um, very, very normal like mm-hmm. on valentine's day she'd give you some heart candy oh, or you know like for for christmas she gave her boy she has two boys for christmas she gave her boys skateboards and footballs like i think that being an artist who's been in the spotlight that long you, it's probably natural to crave some normalcy so yeah she was very efficient very professional she would she would want to come in and hit it you know right. hit it hard work on the show mm-hmm. and then go home and i really respect that about her and i appreciated that you know again like i've heard so many horror stories about working with artists who are divas or yeah who are like don't look the artist in the eye like i've heard about all that kind of stuff but britney was not like that she was very warm and very professional and it was a great really great working experience Excellent. And was there, was she open to like any sort of um, collaboration or anything? Was she open to ideas or anything from the band or was it just, were you guys just there to play just like a specific thing and that's it? I think we, we were, initially we were given a direction as far as what to go for. Cause I know that the whole musical direction and creation team wanted this show to be more of a rock and roll show. And yeah. she's really into rock and roll herself. So it was it was sort of impressed upon me early to take guitar solos and to play big power chords and make it a rock and roll show. Um, but she would occasionally be like, Hey, I want to do this song tonight. Like one night we just did something to talk about by Bonnie Raitt. Like she just one day was like, I want to do a Bonnie Raitt song. And we were like, okay. Yeah. So she was, she was hands-on in all the right ways. It was never, never micromanaging and never, you know, what are you doing? What is that chord? It was more like, hey, can we try this? Can we do a Bonnie Raitt song? And yeah. they're like, yeah, sure, why not? Sweet. That's that's a gr- that's that's great. That's that's really cool to hear. So that way, um, 
just like you said, you know, there's always those horror stories of the sort of diva performers. But I'm glad to hear that she was really kind of down to earth and uh, about and very professional about everything. That's great. That's great to hear. Um, yeah, it was awesome. So what was it? So so you were staying in Vegas for five years? Were you going like back and forth or anything? Or was it just like you would set up shop in Vegas? Yeah. So this was probably the one of the bigger challenges of doing this was we actually would live on the strip. Wow. So we would be down there when she was in residence. So mm-hmm. anywhere between like, say, three weeks to like two months, mm-hmm. she would be in residence. Yeah. So I would fly down. The shows were Wednesday, Friday, Saturday. So I would typically fly down on like a Sunday or Monday. Mm-hmm. And then Tuesday, we would rehearse the show all day. And then Wednesday, we'd be off to the races. So yeah. we do a gig Wednesday, Thursday off, gigs Friday, Saturday. And then you've got Sunday, Monday, Tuesday off. But you're living on the Las Vegas Strip. <laughs> so it's just kind of like constant party around you all the time. Yeah. Um, which can be pretty exhausting. And uh, after the first uh, probably year or a couple of years of doing the show, I would uh, rent a car on Saturday night, yeah. drive to L.A., and then spend Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, early Wednesday in L.A., and then drive back and do the show. Smart move, yeah. Just uh, just basically just kind of getting away from it all. Yeah. Well, partly that, but also I just knew more people in L.A., like other than people who worked on the show. Right. Vegas is sort of like a revolving door of people. So, you know, the people I worked with on the show would probably want to be doing their own thing on the off days. So there would be days where I just wouldn't see anybody. So after a while, I started going to L.A. so I could see friends and, you know, spend a little time near some water. (laughs) (laughs) So you say that uh, there was a revolving door. Was Was there also a revolving door for the musicians themselves or did all of you stay together for the whole run? So it was the same, it was the same four guys for the first three years. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the fourth year, uh, we had a new drummer come in. And then the fifth year, we were mostly touring. And uh, we had a a couple of different guys come in for the touring. So largely the same guys. And then towards the end, some guys would swap out and do other gigs or things like that. Gotcha. Gotcha. And... um... So 2018 comes around, and it was December of 2018. That's when everything wrapped up for her residency? Yeah, well, so the residency actually ended sooner. The residency ended in uh, 2017. Oh, that's right, because you said the the fifth year was the touring. So Touring, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so, the she took, so she ended... took the band. So she was able to take the band with her when she yeah, went which, on the tour. Which was awesome. That's yep. great. Yeah, they basically they scaled the show down a little bit and made some of the props smaller because when you're in an install, mm-hmm. you know, you could build. She had this huge tree prop that she would bungee jump off of when she did the song Toxic. And Random. you can't really take a – yeah, well, it was awesome. <laughs> but, you, but you can't really take a prop like that on the road. So when we took the show on the road, they scaled some of the props down and they scaled down the band risers and made it more – you know, road friendly. And, uh, we did a world tour in 2018. We did, uh, the East coast. We started, we started in mass, maybe Mm -hmm. worked our way down the whole East coast, down to, down to Florida. And then we flew over to Europe, did Mm -hmm. a ton of shows in England, ton of shows in the UK, ton of shows in mainland Europe. Yeah. And, um, did some TV dates and things like that. And that was 2018. 
Wow. And as soon as you said scaled down props, all I'm thinking is the 18-inch Stonehenge dropping down from yeah, right. the spinal tap. <laughs> In danger of being crushed by a dwarf. <laughs> Oh god, I love that movie. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Um so <laughs> um so during that, you know, like during the touring time, was it just you were just working with Britney th- that time? Were you able to do any other sort of gigs or anything during that whole period or was it just focusing on Britney going from show to show? Well, 2018-2019 was when I started to branch out and work with other artists. Mm-hmm. The 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 blessing and the curse of working with Britney for that time was there was so much work that we couldn't really do other things. It was a, it was a real challenge to schedule other things. So 2018 was much lighter scheduling wise. So that's when I had started to, you know, um, be more of a hired gun for other artists. That's when I started to work with Kev Mo. Nice. Um, 2019 was when I started working with Bryce Vine. Um, and I started to, you know, do more more gigs like that, do like a week, you know, yeah. a week promo tour with an artist or a session date in Nashville or a TV date in New York or a TV date in L.A. Um, and that was kind of becoming my field. Yeah. Um, and until everything came to a screeching halt in March 2020. of 2020. Yeah. Yep. So during that period where you're basically coming in as like a hired gun and, you know, doing different shows, working with different artists and doing different genres, different styles. Is that the sort of feeling that you really love to have? Or is it just, or did it feel, did you prefer like working with one artist going from place to place? I think there's advantages of both. And I I know that's like a super politician answer, but (laughs) I think that obviously the job security of working with one artist for five years is, you know, an, a very calming position to be in because you yeah. don't really have to worry about where your next meal is coming from. But the the ability to experiment and try different things and different genres of music by yeah. being more of a side guy and more of a hired gun is exciting artistically. And, you know, it's, it's always fun when you get a call from someone saying, hey, can you do uh, – I have this um, – like I got a call – there was this um, singer who was on, I think she was on like Norwegian Idol or Norway's Got Talent. She, it was something to do with wow. Norway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I got a call. She was coming through New York and she needed a guitar player for uh, a showcase that she was doing at Columbia Records. And, Whoa. you know, getting a call like that is exciting because it's like, all right, cool. I get yeah. to work with this great young artist who is, you know, she she sort of blended old school jazz and like new kind of pop vocals. So I wouldn't have been able to do something like that on one consistent gig. So there's pluses and minuses to both. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, have you been on like any records at all? You know, from all the, from all the different artists you've worked with and all the different tours you've been on, have you been on, have you been like in the recording studio, like working with an artist? I've played on some records, but not any, you know, like the massive pop releases when it comes to an artist like Britney, yeah. when she's working with a producer, nine times out of 10, that producer is going to have their own session musicians that they have some sort of rapport or rhythm with. Yeah. My reputation was more of being a live guy, being mm-hmm. someone who could come in and, 
and you know do a tour or do a gig on short notice um but i did play on some some indie releases and some more records kind of like that i did a lot of stuff like that in new york for independent artists just because there's a lot of musicians around and you know a lot of times when you get it if you work fast and you show up on time mm-hmm. you get a lot of calls to do stuff like that in new york so yeah a lot of indie releases very cool that's that's so cool so then there is so after working with all these different artists and going on all these different tours and getting all this amazing experience what prompted the need to really sit down and start working on your own music was it just because of covid or is it something that you've been just kind of cultivating over the years well i think it was one of those things i had done a lot of songwriting when i was at berkeley in kind of 2007 2008 2009 mm-hmm. and I had had a hard time with it because, again, I was the lonely, sad bastard, acoustic singer-songwriter guy. Right. And when you're driving to a gig by yourself and you play to an empty room and you drive to the next gig by yourself, it can be really kind of a bummer. Yeah. And it put a, a bad taste in my mouth back then. But, you know, as time went on, Mark Fortier, my, my best friend, he and I would talk about, oh, we should do a project. Wouldn't it be cool if we could do something that was like Billie Eilish meets Death Cab for Cutie? Wouldn't this be cool if we could do something like a Jimmy World meets the Postal Service, you know? Yeah. Um, And it became this thing that we always talked about. And we really wanted to do it, Mm -hmm. but it was more so a conversation piece than it was, you know, than it had any action behind it. And once COVID uh, happened, yeah, all of a sudden we had this overabundance of free time. <laughs> oh and yes. We said to each other, well, if we're going to be around, we might as well make use of this time. And I had had some kind of some seeds of ideas and he had had some sketches and we just got together and started, we started treating it like a business. Honestly, it was, it became Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, we get together at 11 and we write from 11 to six and then, that's the day. And some days you might not come up with anything. Some days you might come up with a bunch of things, but um, it just sort of started off as, well, let's do this and see what happens. And after probably like the second or third song, there was a clear cut vision. Then it became, all right, now we have a North star. Now we have something that we're working towards. And it's, I mean, it really honestly happened pretty organically. Yeah. Nice. And so um, since Mark was talking about you know, like all these different styles that he had in mind, was that something where you were going to basically kind of pick one of those and that was going to be the basis of the album? Or was it going to be something where you were going to try this style for this song or this style for this song and just kind of make it all eclectic? I just I think when it comes right down to it, there's a lot of different records that he and I both love. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, we have a nearly identical taste in music. So always a good thing. <laughs> yeah, it definitely helps when you're collaborating with someone. So we had a lot of different types of music that we both loved and we were both, you know, I love Billie Eilish's when we all fall asleep, where do we go record? I yeah. think that's an incredible record. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't make something like that because I'm not her and right. I have a different life experience. I play different instruments. And so I always I thought, well, what if wouldn't it be cool if we took a guitar approach to electronic music? Yeah. And when you get to the finished product, it doesn't really sound anything like her or anything like Jimmy World or Death Cab for Cutie. But we both 
had our influences that we loved mm-hmm. and kind of this vague idea of something that we wanted to do. And, and it just sort of happened organically. It's like that Quentin Tarantino quote of like, what's a, what's something you would love to see? What's a movie you'd love to see? Make that movie. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. So you said you were about uh, eight, nine songs on it. We have, we have nine songs. I'm uh, the jury's out on one of them. I'm not sure if it's good yet. Right. So we'll call it a, we'll call it a soft nine, more of like a, a hard eight. Very cool, very cool. So, um, so for those who are looking to kind of get on their own Excelsior journey and they want to get into music, they want to work with different artists, they want to. Um, they want to get them get themselves going on the guitar and everything. What would you say would be the first step that they that they should make? I mean, it sounds really obvious, but just start doing it. Yeah. Um, the The barrier of entry to make music now is so small. I mean, my dad tells stories of, you know, in the in the seventies and eighties, if he and his friends wanted to record something, they yeah. would have to pool all their resources sell whatever extraneous gear they owned that they didn't need mm-hmm. and then get studio time, you know, schedule a time where they could all be in the studio together. But now it's like you're a laptop away from yeah. making a record. Mm-hmm. Um, and I urge any songwriter to just start. Don't wait until you get the best plugins or the best microphone or the best guitar because ultimately circling back to Billie Eilish, Billie Eilish and her brother Phineas made when we all fall asleep, where do we go in Phineas's bedroom, the whole record on a MacBook pro and a couple of Yamaha speakers and a microphone. Really? Um, I did not know the whole, Yeah. yeah, the whole record. So the barrier of entry is incredibly low right now. The Mm -hmm. best advice I can give to any songwriter is just start doing it because if you have something tangible in front of you and you want to start working with other musicians, it really helps to have something to show and say, Hey, this is the sound that I'm kind of aiming at. What do you think? Right. Right. And where can, where can our listeners find you on social media? So right now the best place is Instagram Mm -hmm. because that's sort of my, like it's become my sort of digital, uh, resume yeah um, but it's just my name zach comtois z-a-c-h-c-o-m-t-o-i-s and mm-hmm. um we haven't posted any of the new stuff yet because it's all still sort of marinating yeah um but as soon as we st- it'll probably be pretty soon that we start kind of teasing singles and things like that right. I'll, I'll be doing it on my on my instagram page sweet sweet I am I'm so thrilled that Zach said what he said when it comes to taking that first step, because you really do just have to make that effort to pick up what you know, like what it is that you are working on and just start getting it down. It's never going to be right the first time. You have to just keep on working. At it. You have to keep plugging away at it. And when you do, you're going to you're going to get your breakthroughs. There is something that is going to happen. So I really, really hope that all of you are doing that, that you are all just picking up your, your item of choice, whether it's a pen, whether it's, you know, sitting at the keyboard, whether it's a guitar, anything that, you know, that drives that creative energy and just start working at it. So for Zach Comtois, 
This is George Soroy saying to all of you, Ever Upward, and I will see you next week. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. If you've never been an Audible customer and want to see what they offer, just go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs, download a title for free, and start listening. It's that easy. Why Audible? Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. And with this free 30-day trial, you'll have your pick of it all. You can hear books of all genres narrated by Jim Dale, Stephen Fry, Will Patton, Alex Hyde-White, Jeff Brick, Neil Shaw, William Demerit, and even a few by me, George Soroy. So go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and start your own 30-day journey with Audible today.